We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I feel the liftoff. The clock has started. Roger. In Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is a new and strange environment first. This suddenly finding yourself in orbit. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 26 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, why the moon? In May of 1960, NASA submitted its 1962 fiscal budget. In reviewing the budget, President Eisenhower learned for the first time of NASA's plan for a lunar landing program. Ike's response was to ask presidential science advisor George Kistiakowski to study the goals, the missions, and the cost of the manned spaceflight program that NASA had in mind. Here are the conclusions of the study. Number one, the first major goal of the Man in Space program is to orbit a man about the Earth. It will cost about $350 million. Two, the next goal of an intermediate nature is the manned circumnavigation of the Moon. It will cost about $8 billion. Number three, the second major goal, landing on the moon, can only be achieved by 1975, after an additional national expenditure in the vicinity of 26 to $38 billion. Number four, the Saturn program is a necessary intermediate step toward manned lunar landing, but must be followed by a much bigger development before manned lunar landing is possible. Number five, the unmanned program is a necessary prerequisite to a manned program. Even if there were no manned program, the unmanned program might yield as much scientific knowledge and on this basis would be justified in its own right. Number six, even if there were no manned in space program, Saturn C2 is still a minimal vehicle for close-up instrumented study of Venus and Mars, for unmanned trips to more distant planets, and for putting rover vehicles on the surface of the moon. And finally, number seven, manned trips to the vicinity of Venus or Mars are not yet foreseeable. Eisenhower's first comment was that he was not willing to support a program to send people to the moon. Since it was so late in Ike's term, the final decision would be made by Eisenhower's successor, John F. Kennedy. NASA went ahead with planning for an Apollo moon landing, but funding for the program was far from certain, given Eisenhower's opposition. John F. Kennedy was the first president-elect to set up high-level transition teams to advise him on issues that he would face upon assuming the presidency. His transition team on space was chaired by MIT professor Jerome B. Wisner, a member of President Eisenhower's Science Advisory Committee and thus familiar with discussions inside the Eisenhower administration on space policy and programs. Wisner had advised Kennedy on science and technology issues during the presidential campaign 
and would become the new president's science advisor. The report reflected the widespread skepticism within the scientific elite of the country over the value and even feasibility of human spaceflight. The Weisner Committee's report was finished on January 10, 1961 and submitted to the President. Here is an excerpt concerning the man in space issue. We are rapidly approaching the time when the state of technology will make it possible for man to go out into space. It is sure that as soon as this possibility exists, man will be compelled to make use of it. By the same motives that have compelled him to travel to the poles and to the climb the highest mountains of the earth, there are also dimly perceived military and scientific missions in space which may prove to be very important. Thus manned exploration of space will certainly come to pass, and we believe that the United States must play a vigorous role in this venture. However, in order to achieve an effective and sound program in the field, a number of facts must be clearly understood. First, someday it may be possible for men in space to accomplish important scientific and technical tasks. For the time being, however, it appears that space exploration must rely on unmanned vehicles. Therefore, a crash program aimed at placing a man into an orbit at the earliest possible time cannot be justified solely on scientific or technical grounds. Indeed, it may hinder the development of our scientific and technical program, even the future manned space program, by diverting manpower, vehicles, and funds. Secondly, the acquisition of new knowledge and the enrichment of human life through technological advances are solid, durable, and worthwhile goals of space activities. There is general lack of appreciation of this simple truism, both at home and abroad. Indeed, by having placed highest national priority on the Mercury program, we have strengthened the popular belief that man in space is the most important aim of our non-military space effort. The manner in which this program has been publicized in our press has further crystallized such belief. It exaggerates the value of that aspect of space activity where we are less likely to achieve success and discounts those aspects in which we have already achieved great success and will probably reap further stresses in the future. Thirdly, a failure in our first attempt to place a man into orbit resulting in the death of an astronaut, would create a situation of serious national embarrassment. An even more serious situation would result if we failed to safely recover a man from orbit. On the basis of these facts, we would recommend the following. 1. By allowing the present Mercury program to continue unchanged for more than a very few months, the new administration would effectively endorse this program and take the blame for its possible failures. A thorough and impartial appraisal of the Mercury program should be urgently made. The objectives of various phases of this program, including the proposed physiological test, should be critically examined. The margins of safety should be realistically estimated. If our present man-in-space program appears unsound, we must be prepared to modify it drastically or even cancel it.
It is important that a decision on these matters be reached at the earliest possible date. Number two, whatever we decide to actually do about the Man in Space program, we should stop advertising Mercury as our major objective in space activities. Indeed, we should make an effort to diminish the significance of this program to its proper proportion before the public, both at home and abroad. We should find effective means to make people appreciate the cultural, public service, and military importance of space activities other than space travel. Clearly, Kennedy's science advisor was not a proponent of the Mercury program or manned space travel at present, and he was extremely risk-averse. Kennedy received another report from the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, Trevor Garner. His report called for an opposite approach, recommending a major manned effort under the sponsorship of the Air Force. Another report came from the National Academy of Sciences with a third viewpoint, as a panel headed by Lloyd Berkner enthusiastically called for NASA to send men to the moon. On January 20, 1961, in John F. Kennedy's inauguration speech, he suggested international cooperation in space. However, Khrushchev declined as the Soviets did not want to reveal the status of their rocketry and space capabilities. In the following weeks, Kennedy's advisors continued to caution him that a moon flight would be prohibitively expensive, but he postponed the decision. Instead, he appointed Vice President Johnson chairman of the U.S. Space Council to study the matter. Lyndon Johnson was a strong supporter of the U.S. space program and had worked for the creation of NASA when he was in the Senate. On April 12, 1961, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gargarin became the first person to fly in space, reinforcing American fears about being left behind in a technological competition with the Soviet Union. Two days later, April 14th, as the people of Moscow flooded Red Square to give their hero, Yuri Gagarin, a boisterous welcome, Kennedy met with his advisors in the cabinet room of the White House. He listened to them. Sometimes he muttered, quote, We may never catch up, end quote. And then he recovered his spirit and said, quote, Now, let's look at this. Is there any place we can catch them? What can we do? Can we go around the moon before them? Can we put a man on the moon before them? When will the Saturn be ready? Can we leapfrog? End quote. Dryden of NASA explained that their one hope was a crash program similar to the Man Manhattan Project, but such an effort might cost $40 billion, and even then it would offer no more than a 50-50 chance of winning. Kennedy replied, quote, The cost, that's what gets me. When we know more, I can decide if it's worth it or not. If somebody can just tell me how to catch up. Let's find somebody, anybody. I don't care if it's the janitor if he knows how. End quote. Kennedy stopped speaking for a moment, glancing from face to face, and then he added, quote, There's nothing else more important. End quote. Then Kennedy thanked his advisors for coming over and asked Theodore Sorson, a trusted associate 
to join him in the Oval Office. They talked about five minutes, and Sorson came out. He said, quote, We're going to the moon, end quote. The President had made his decision intuitively, knowing the cost would be enormous and knowing the U.S. had not even flown a manned mission yet, but accepting that this challenge was one he had to face then and there. He would need to learn much more from other colleagues, to be sure, but as the meeting broke up, he knew in his mind what he wanted to do. On April 20, 1961, after a week of discussions within the White House on how best to respond to the challenge of U.S. interest posed by the April 12th orbital flight of Yuri Gagarin, President Kennedy set in motion a review of where the U.S. currently stood and where it could get ahead of the Soviet Union. The President sent a memorandum to Vice President Johnson asking him to find the answers to five important questions. Here is an excerpt of the memo. Memorandum for Vice President In accordance with our conversation, I would like for you as Chairman of the Space Council to be in charge of making an overall survey of where we stand in space. Number one, do we have a chance of beating the Soviets by putting a laboratory in space, or by a trip around the moon, or by a rocket to land on the moon, or by a rocket to go to the moon and back with a man? Is there any other space program which promises dramatic results in which we could win? Question number two. How much additional would it cost? Question number three. Are we working 24 hours a day on existing programs? If not, why not? If not, will you make recommendations to me as to how work can be sped up? Question number four. In building large boosters, should we put our emphasis on nuclear, chemical, or liquid fuel, or a combination of these three? And question number five. Are we making maximum effort? Are we achieving necessary results? I have asked Jim Webb, Dr. Wisner, Secretary McNamara, and other responsible officials to cooperate with you fully. I would appreciate a report on this at the earliest possible moment. Signed, John F. Kennedy. Eight days later, Vice President Johnson responded to the President's questions. Question number one, do we have a chance of beating the Soviets by putting a laboratory in space, etc., etc.? Answer, the Soviets now have a rocket capable of putting a multi-man laboratory into space and have already crash-landed a rocket on the moon. They also have the booster capability of making a soft landing on the moon with a payload of instruments. Although we do not know how much preparation they have made for such a project, as for a manned trip around the moon or a safe landing and return by a man to the moon, neither the U.S. nor the USSR has such capability at this time, so far as we know. The Russians have had more experience with large boosters and with flights of dogs and man. Hence, they might be conceded a time advantage in the circumnavigation of the moon and also in a manned trip to the moon. However, with a strong effort, the United States could conceivably be first in those two accomplishments by 1966 or 67. There are a number of programs which the U.S. could pursue immediately and which promise significant worldwide advantage over the Soviets. Among these are communication satellites, 
meteorological and weather satellites, navigation and mapping satellites. These are all areas in which we have already done some with some competence. We have such programs and believe that the Soviets do not. Moreover, they are programs which would be made operational and effective within reasonably short periods of time and could, if properly programmed with the interest of other nations, make useful strides toward world leadership. The President's second question, how much additional would it cost? The Vice President's answer, to start upon an accelerated program with the aforementioned objectives clearly in mind, NASA has submitted an analysis indicating that $500 million would be needed for fiscal year 1962 over and above the amount currently requested of the Congress. A program based upon NASA's analysis would, over a 10-year period, average approximately $1 billion a year above the current estimates of the existing NASA program. Question 3. Are we working 24 hours a day on existing programs? The Vice President's answer. There is not a 24-hour-a-day work schedule on existing NASA space programs except for selected areas in Project Mercury, the Saturn C-1 booster, the Centaur engines, and the final launching phases of most flight missions. They advise that their schedules have been geared to the availability of facilities and financial resources, and that hence their overtime and three-shift arrangements exist only on those activities in which there are particular bottlenecks or which are holding up operations in other parts of the program. This work can be sped up through firm decisions to go ahead faster if accompanied by additional funds needed for the acceleration. Question 4. In building large boosters, should we put our emphasis on nuclear, chemical, or liquid fuel, or a combination of the three? Vice President's answer. It was the consensus that liquid, solid, and nuclear boosters should all be considered. This conclusion is based not upon the necessity for backup methods, but also because of the advantages of the different types of boosters for different missions. A program of such emphasis would meet both so-called civilian needs and defense requirements. Question 5 from the President. Are we making maximum effort? Are we achieving necessary results? Answer. We are neither making maximum effort nor achieving results necessary if this country is to reach a position of leadership. Signed, Lyndon B. Johnson. The Vice President also consulted Werner von Braun on the memo sent by the President, and he, of course, had some more technical answers to the questions. The President's first question, do we have a chance of beating the Soviets by putting a laboratory in space, etc., etc.? Answer from Von Braun. We do not have a good chance of beating the Soviets to a manned laboratory in space. The Russians could place it in orbit this year, while we could establish a somewhat heavier laboratory only after the availability of the reliable Saturn C-1, which is in 1964. We have a sporting chance of beating the Soviets to a soft landing of a radio transmitter station on the moon. It is hard to say whether this objective is on their program, but as far as the launch rocket is concerned, they could do it at any time. We plan to do it with the Atlas Agena B-boosted Ranger in early 1962. We have a sporting chance of sending three men 
around the moon ahead of the Soviets in 1965 or 66. However, the Soviets could conduct a round-the-moon voyage earlier if they are ready to waive certain emergency safety features and limit the voyage to one man. My estimate is that they could perform this simplified task in 62 or 63. We have an excellent chance of beating the Soviets to the first landing of a crew on the moon, including return capability, of course. The reason is that a performance jump by a factor of 10 over their present rocket is necessary to accomplish this feat. While today we do not have such a rocket, it is unlikely that the Soviets have it. Therefore, we would not have to enter the race toward this obvious next goal in space exploration against hopeless odds favoring the Soviets. With an all-out crash program, I think we could accomplish this objective by 1967 or 68. And here is Werner von Braun's response to the fourth question, which was, In building large boosters, should we put our emphasis on nuclear, chemical, or liquid fuel, or a combination of these three? Answer. It is the consensus opinion among most rocket men and reactor experts that the future of the nuclear rocket lies in deep space operations, under stages of chemically boosted rockets or nuclear space vehicles departing from an orbit around the Earth rather than launching them. In addition, there can be little doubt that the basic technology of nuclear rockets is still in its early infancy. The nuclear rocket should therefore be looked upon as a promising means to extend and expand our scope of space exploration in the years beyond 1967 or 68. It should not be considered as a serious contender in the big booster problem of 1961. As to the question of chemical or liquid fuel, the President's question undoubtedly refers to the comparison between solid and liquid rocket fuels, both of which involve chemical reactions. At the present time, our most powerful rocket boosters, Atlas, first stage of Titan, first stage of Saturn are all liquid-fueled rockets and are available. Evidence indicates that the Soviets are also using liquid fuel for their ICBM and space launchings. Now Kennedy had the answer to his questions. And on May 5, 1961, Alan Shepard made a successful suborbital spaceflight in a Mercury Redstone vehicle. Kennedy was eager for the U.S. to take the lead in the space race. For reasons of strategy and prestige, he first announced the goal of landing a man on the moon in a speech to a joint session of Congress on May 25, 1961. Here is a clip of JFK's speech. Finally, if we are to win the battle that is now going on around the world between freedom and tyranny, the dramatic achievements in space which occurred in recent weeks should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. Since early in my term, our efforts in space have been under review. With the advice of the Vice President, who is Chairman of the National Space Council, we have examined where we are strong and where we are not, where we may succeed and where we may not. 
Now it is time to take longer strides. Time for a great new American enterprise. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. I believe we possess all the resources and talents necessary, but the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long-range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. Recognizing the head start obtained by the Soviets with their large rocket engines, which gives them many months of lead time, and recognizing the likelihood that they will exploit this lead for some time to come in still more impressive successes, we nevertheless are required to make new efforts on our own. For while we cannot guarantee that we shall one day be first, we can guarantee that any failure to make this effort will make us last. We take an additional risk by making it in full view of the world. But as shown by the feet of astronaut Shepard, this very risk enhances our stature when we are successful. But this is not merely a race. Space is open to us now, and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space because whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. We propose to accelerate the development of the appropriate lunar spacecraft. We propose to develop alternate liquid and solid fuel boosters, much larger than any now being developed, until certain which is superior. We propose additional funds for other engine development and for unmanned exploration, explorations which are particularly important for one purpose which this nation will never overlook, the survival of the man who first makes this daring flight. But in a very real sense, it will not be one man going to the moon. If we make this judgment affirmatively, it will be an entire nation, for all of us must work to put him there. Secondly, an additional $23 million, together with $7 million already available, will accelerate development of the Rover nuclear rocket. This gives promise of someday providing a means for even more exciting and ambitious exploration of space, perhaps beyond the moon, perhaps to the very end of the solar system itself. Third, an additional $50 million will make the most of our present leadership 
by accelerating the use of space satellites for worldwide communication. Fourth, an additional $75 million, of which $53 million is for the Weather Bureau, will help give us at the earliest possible time a satellite system for worldwide weather observation. Let it be clear, and this is a judgment which the members of the Congress must finally make, let it be clear that I am asking the Congress and the country to accept a firm commitment to a new course of action, a course which will last for many years and carry very heavy costs, $531 million in fiscal 62, and an estimated seven to nine billion dollars additional over the next five years. If we are to go only halfway or reduce our sights in the face of difficulty, in my judgment, it would be better not to go at all. Now, this is a choice which this country must make, and I'm confident that under the leadership of the space committees of the Congress and the appropriating committees that you will consider the matter carefully. It is a most important decision that we make as a nation. But uh, all of you have lived uh, through the last four years and have seen the significance of space and the adventures in space. And no one can predict with certainty uh, what the ultimate meaning will be of mastery of space. I believe we should go to the moon. But I think every citizen of this country, as well as the members of the Congress, should consider the matter carefully in making their judgment, to which we've given attention over many weeks and months, because it is a heavy burden, and uh, there is no sense in uh, agreeing uh, or desiring that the United States take an affirmative position in outer space unless we are prepared to do the work and bear the burdens to make it successful. If we are not, we should decide today and this year. The Congress and the people were willing to accept the burden of leadership in space and funding was provided. On September 12, 1962, Kennedy took a trip to Houston, Texas to visit NASA. While there, he asked to give a speech at Rice University. There, on the football field, before an audience of incoming Rice freshman college students and busloads of public school students on the football field, he gave what I believe was the most important presidential speech in space history. Here's some clips. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. And no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in this race for space. Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first waves of the Industrial Revolution, the first waves of modern invention, and the first wave of nuclear power. And this generation does not intend to founder in the backwash of the coming age of space. We mean to be a part of it. We mean to lead it.
we set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man. And only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a new terrifying theater of war. Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. The Mariner spacecraft, now on its way to Venus, is the most intricate instrument in the history of space science. The accuracy of that shot is comparable to firing a missile from Cape Canaveral and dropping it in this stadium between the 40-yard lines. Transit satellites are helping our ships at sea to steer a safer course. Tyrus satellites have given us unprecedented warnings of hurricanes and storms and will do the same for forest fires and icebergs. We have had our failures, but so have others, even if they do not admit them, and they may be less public. To be sure, to be sure we are behind, and will be behind for some time in man's flight. But we do not intend to stay behind, and in this decade, we shall make up and move ahead. The growth of our science and education will be enriched by new knowledge of our universe and environment, by new techniques of learning and mapping and observation, by new tools and computers for industry, medicine, and the home as well as the school. Technical institutions such as Rice will reap the harvest of these gains. Many years ago, the great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked, why did he want to climb it? He said, because it is there. Well, space is there, and we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there, and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. An extraordinary speech of history, discovery, and not giving up and pushing forward.
On November 21, 1962, in a cabinet meeting with NASA Administrator James Webb and other officials, Kennedy explained that the moonshot was important for reasons of international prestige and that the expense was justified. Vice President Johnson assured him that lessons learned from the space program had military value as well. Costs for the Apollo program were expected to reach $40 billion. Only the construction of the Panama Canal in peacetime and the Manhattan Project in wartime were comparable in scope. NASA's overall human spaceflight effort was guided by Kennedy's speech. Project Mercury, at least in its latter stages, Gemini, and Apollo were designed to execute Kennedy's goal. In September of 1963, in a speech before the United Nations, Kennedy urged cooperation between the Soviets and the Americans in space, specifically recommending that Apollo be switched to a joint expedition to the moon. Khrushchev again declined, and the Soviets did not commit to a manned-moon mission until 1964. On July 20, 1969, almost six years after Kennedy's death, Apollo 11 landed the first manned spacecraft on the moon. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.